Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported. That means we truly depend on you in order to bring this resource to you. If you don't already support us financially, you could do so. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. You'll see our three friendly yellow buttons there. One says donate. The other says join our crew. The other says become a patron. Click on one of them and fill that out. If you'd like to support us the traditional way, you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, September 13th. 2018. I, I think I have a themed episode today. This is progress. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you to slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare. Compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. And we take the time to open up God's Word to compare and contrast what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles and apostolettes, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books apparently we need to be buying, and whose small group curricula we need to be studying instead of the Word of God. Yeah, weird how that works. Over and again, we demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine, that's teaching that's put forward uh, for consumption by the average evangelical, is far from biblical, far from what God's Word says. It's generally a complete mess. I think you get the idea. And so we try to straighten everything out here, teach you some sound biblical discernment doctrine along the way, using a proper distinction between law and gospel, and a hermeneutic that is taught in scriptures that the Bible is about Jesus. It's not about you. It's about what Christ has done for you. And for some of you who are new to the program, that is going to be one of those things that could be a sticking point, and we totally get that. And so one of the requests that we make here at Fighting for the Faith is that we never require you to listen with an open mind. No, I don't care if you listen with an open mind. Don't need you to give me the benefit of the doubt. Listen with an open Bible. That's the thing that will make the difference. Now, all of that being said, uh, we have a themed episode today. I feel like I've accomplished something. Uh, past few episodes, I have been unsuccessful in my themage. <laughs> so I was very happy to find that I have a theme today that I was able to work. 
And so let's talk about what we're going to do on this installment of Fighting for the Faith. We are going to begin with a prophetic Holy Orders Network Information Exchange Syndicate twin spin. Twin spin. We're going to begin with Trevor Baker. Now, if you're not familiar with this fellow, we do not review him very often. Uh, he is uh, from the United Kingdom, and uh, he is the guy in charge of revival fires in the United Kingdom. And the, the reason I chose this particular segment is because this is a great example of an overt thing that occurs within the charismatic and narismatic churches. And that is, is the belief that God's word is insufficient. In fact, you know, you t- you challenge them on this. They'll go, oh, no, 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 no. We believe that God's word is sufficient. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Know what I mean? Know what I mean? But we also think that the experience of God is is also vitally important. You sit there and go, How, if it's not sufficient, then what is this experience of God thing? So we're going to listen to Trevor Baker of Revival Fires talking about the presence of Jesus, and you'll hear for yourself some of the uh, you know the propaganda type techniques that they use to talk down the Word of God, overtly talk it down, in order to replace it with experience or supplement it. It's not really replace; it's supplemented. And uh, one of the things I've noted, you know, having been in the uh, charismatic churches uh, in the latter reign back in the <clears throat> late 80s, yeah, I'm getting old, but uh, is that uh, what they emphasize, the, the thing that they emphasize, that's the thing that grows in importance, and the thing that they de-emphasize, that's the thing that disappears as far as importance is concerned. And I have yet to see a salient example of a charismatic or narismatic church where the pastor engages in true, solid, sound, expository, biblical preaching. Over and again, God's word falls into the background and it is replaced with the subjective and with these really strange experiences. Best way I can put it. Then as uh, part two of our uh, twin spin, we'll be listening to Ron Carpenter from uh, his uh, Supernatural series, which was delivered during the summer, at least it was uh, broadcast in the summer. And we're going to note that, uh, you know, he's going to overtly talk about this idea that, uh, you know, we've got to do these supernatural signs and wonders. And the text he goes to is the text where the Apostle Paul anoints handkerchiefs and things like that and sends them off and and people are made well. The issue, though, is that what Paul was doing there was not something that was normative for the whole church. Yeah, no, far from it. And and instead, the, the miracles that he performed were the signs of the apostles, that the sign that he was a true apostle of Jesus Christ. And so what they're doing is they're taking uh, the signs of the apostles that Paul demonstrated that he was truly an apostle, and they're trying to smuggle it in and make it you know, normative for the rest of the church when it isn't. And uh, we'll, we'll do some debunking work along the way. And then to round out our number one, we're going to be heading down to Church Unlimited as we listen to Tak Bana 
explain to us how miracles are normative in the Bible and in Christianity, and they're not. And by doing so, he's pu- putting a really super heavy burden on people that uh, they they are incapable of performing, of, of doing. And it's just generally making a mess of things. And you'll note that the... Uh, <clears throat> the the techniques that he's engaging in will debunk his uh, Bible twisting along the way is tying a heavy burden on people which will either force them to pretend that they are performing miracles and will even catch him in in some vagaries of his own or you know or they're gonna just walk away saying they can't pull this off and so it you know it's it's all of this is uh, based upon the false teaching as it uh, relates to signs and wonders and their purpose, uh, as laid out in Scripture. Then hour number two, it's going to seem like we're going to be off topic, but we're not. We're heading down to Saddleback Church as we listen to Rick Warren and uh, review his sermon, How to Come Back from Emotional Burnout. (laughs) You're going, what? Yeah, yeah. Did you know that the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel, the in the aftermath of that, where uh, Jezebel, Jezebel was breathing out murderous threats against Elijah, that uh, when Elijah fled for his life, that he was demonstrating telltale signs that uh, he was uh, literally on the emotional edge, and apparently, uh, in in the narrative itself, mm-hmm, you don't sound like you believe me. Uh, in the narrative itself, uh, there are the, God reveals the steps necessary to overcome emotional burnout. Yeah, I'm, I'm not making that up, so I, I, I wish I were, but I'm not. But uh, so that will be today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Strongly recommend you make yourself comfortable. We got a lot of ground we need to cover, and since we're going to begin with a uh, well, prophetic holy orders. Network Information Exchange Syndicate. We're going to start with the twin spin. We'll reset after the uh, first break. But uh, here we go. Oh. Hallelujah. That's uh, Robert Tilton and Hubaba Kanda. So we're heading over to Revival Fires in the United Kingdom as we listen to Trevor Baker uh, overtly dissing the Word of God. It's the best way that I could put it. He's overtly dissing the Word of God. And uh, it, in its place, he's you know supplementing God's Word with, well, the best way I can put it is with uh, so-called signs and wonders and the presence of Jesus and stuff like that. But watch 
you know, how the Word of God just isn't sufficient. Here we go. Uh, I want to share something this morning, um, and it's much a message. I want us to come into a place of manifestation this morning. And, um, you know, so often we can get caught up. He wants us to come into a place of manifestation. What on earth is that? Let me back this up just a little bit. Message, I want us to come into a place of manifestation this morning. And, um, you know, so often we can get caught up. And I love God's words, you know that. But there's times that... We need to not just get caught up with the word, but get caught up with the manifestation of his presence. So there's times when we shouldn't just get caught up with the word, but also manifestations of his presence. Really. Just want the event of preaching this morning. We're wanting to experience the living word this morning, don't you? See, I know that there are needs here this morning, and I've got some great news for you, that we've got a God who meets every need. Hallelujah. Am I Yes, God meets our needs, but where is the need for manifestation laid out in Scripture? And where does God promise manifestation in Scripture? Loud for people. Okay, just so that I don't want to, you know, have to pray for your eardrums afterwards, you know. And, um, but I just sensed this morning that God wants to just come. And as I was praying for us earlier this morning, I was just saying, God, would you come in like a mist? What? So that all of the residual particles in our lives that don't align with your presence. You know, just like you would um, see a mist that comes in and it moves all the dust out of the way. The dust is able to settle. I just believe this morning that there's things that's just going to, that's been blinding or blocking your view of his presence. A mist is going to come in and as it comes in, all those residual things are going to begin to move out of the way. And I just sense this morning that my role this morning is to so prepare you to respond to the manifest presence of Jesus. You know, this isn't going to be, this isn't going to be a big preach. This is going to be preparing you to step in with what you have need of today for God to manifest his presence. See, that's what I want to do. And um, there's two you know, you just have to ask, where is he getting this? This idea that, uh, you know, God wants to do a manifestation. And because he says so, that means there's going to be a mist that shows up there at um, at revival fires in the United Kingdom. Wow. Passages that have really helped me understand this. Um, this week. And I just want to connect these two passages together. And it's like they, they come out, they, they don't in real life, but as you read the Bible, they sort of like come out in the second breath. And um, 
And the two passages are from Mark chapter 9 and Mark chapter 10. And I'm not going to read all of them, so you'll be pleased about that. But there's just two verses, and it's part of the verses. And um, just to give you a little recap, the, the story is the man who has a son and he needs healing. And, uh, and so what happens is he brings this child that needs healing that he gets through deliverance. See, sometimes we need to realize that there is demonic powers and that's not for us to get so caught up with the demonic, but there are demonic powers that hinder the healing presence of God breaking in. And so when we... You're getting that from Mark 9? Deal with the demonic, the healing takes place. And, uh, and that's this story. He, this man, he has this son and he, he brings the son to the disciples. And, um, and it, he says to, to them that whenever this demon takes hold of his son, it seizes him and it throws him into one moment he's being thrown into the fire. The next minute he's being thrown into water. And there's just these, I mean, that's just a paradox of terms, isn't it? You know, what, what is he talking about? By the way, the, the account is in the gospel of Mark, uh, chapter nine. And, you know, this is after the Mount of Transfiguration. And, uh, and so Jesus has come down the mountain and here's what it says, starting at Mark 9:14. When they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw Jesus, they were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing with them about? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. So they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately convulsed the boy, and he fell to the ground, rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood, it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. So you'll, you'll note here that, you know, that the throwing him into fire and water has nothing to do with paradox. It has to do with the different means by which this demon was trying to destroy this child. And so Jesus, and so the guy says, if you can do anything, have compassion uh, on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you to come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. 
So there you have it. I, you know, it's that's the story in context. I don't know what Trevor Baker is going on about. They're in water, they don't go together. Listen, there is nothing that the devil does that actually lines up. There is always conflict in whatever he's seeking to do. And sometimes we need to realize the conflicts that we go through can be the result of demonic activity in our lives that God wants to set us free from. And so here, um, then they, this man, he brings him to Jesus and Jesus says, Oh, unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long, this is what I want you to get hold of, how long shall I be with you? And then he says to them, how long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. Now, what you have to understand here is that the disciples have been with Jesus. You understand? And he says to his disciples, you unbelieving generation, how long is my presence going to be with you and you still don't believe the power of my presence? Uh, (laughs) No, that's not what the text says. You just added something to it. Yeah, that's called eisegesis, reading into the text something that isn't there. That's a form of Bible twisting. You see, so often we can go through all of the information about what we believe, but you see, sometimes we believe too much. And we need to get back to a place where it's just about having enough belief in his presence. Hallelujah. And so here... Yeah, so you're saying that Jesus is saying unbelief in his presence, so we need to experience his presence. That's not what this text is about at all. In fact, quite fascinatingly, you know, in the uh, Transfiguration event itself, Moses and Elijah appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration to discuss with Jesus what Luke describes as his exodus, his soon departure. What you're saying is absolutely nonsensical and a total twisting of Mark 9. He was saying, you unbelieving generation, how long will I be with you? And um, and then he goes on and he says to the, um, he says to the man, Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered, he has often been thrown him into the fire and water to kill him. And this is it. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. It was like saying this. If you can do anything, will you do something? See, so often we have this, we make these statements of fact. But the thing is this, they still don't cut it with the present situation that we're in. And we can make all of the declarations, we can decree and we can declare, but there comes a point when they still don't cut it because next week we're still decreeing and we're still declaring. A little bit of a note here. Decreeing and declaring is not prayer. Yeah, prayer is actually asking God, petitioning God. Pleading with God, decreeing and declaring, we don't have authority 
to decree and declare. We are called to pray, to seek God in our time of need and trouble. He is an ever-present help in time of trouble. And we are to seek him and call upon his name in our time of distress and trouble. So what Trevor is doing here is just utterly mangling the text. Went a little longer on this one than I wanted to, uh, but uh, I I kept at it because, again, it started off with him literally dissing the Bible. It's not enough. And and him claiming that uh, God's talking to him about manifestation. And then in order to justify the presence in the manifestation that's going to supposedly show up like a mist during the service, he's now twisted Mark 9, I mean really mangled the text, into a pretzel uh, to make it say all kinds of stuff that it ain't saying. And he literally overtly added some things to it. All right, moving along, we are still under the Prophetic Holy Orders Network Information Exchange Syndicate, and uh, we're going to be heading over to the YouTube channel of Ron Carpenter uh, and uh, listening to a portion of his Supernatural series and listen to what he is claiming regarding uh, the miraculous being normal, apparently. And what he's doing is he's taking the signs of the apostles that the Apostle Paul demonstrated, and he is trying to make them the norm for Christianity. Here we go. Now God, verse 11, worked unusual. Now it's Acts 19.11. Miracles by the hand of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs, my God, aprons were brought from his body to the sick. And these diseases left them in evil spirit. They were bringing handkerchiefs that touched Paul's body and going home and demons were flying out of their house. I mean, this is a bad motor scooter. I grew up watching old Roberts do this kind of thing and everybody called him a crazy and called him a madman. It come right from Acts 19. It's called a point of agreement. If two touch anything on earth, it shall be done. I can touch a cloth and you can touch a cloth and we can touch it and agree over it together and you can send it to Ohio and put it under somebody's pillow and they can come right off of a hospital bed. It's called whatever two touch and agree. And when it t- Yeah, that's not what this text is about. Yeah, like not at all. So uh, let's take a look at uh, two texts in particular. Acts 19.11. In Acts 19.11, we see something extraordinary. In fact, the text says so. Here's what it says, Acts 19.11. God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of of Paul. Note it doesn't say anybody else, but uh, it was only by the hands of Paul. And uh, tukano is the um, is the Greek word for extraordinary. Uh, and these these are like over the top. This is the one of a kind. These are these are you know utterly astounding types of things. And this has nothing to do with where two or more agree on a thing than. Whatever, yeah, what uh, Ron Carpenter is doing here uh, with that text is absolutely just horrific. But uh, in particular, what I want to point out 
is that the Apostle Paul, you know, actually makes it very clear what it was that was going on there in Acts 19, as well as other places where God performed miracles through his hand. And it's 2 Corinthians 12, 12. And here's what I'm I'm going to put it in its context by adding 11. And here's what Paul is writing. He's writing against the so-called super apostles who were undermining his authority and undermining his ministry. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 11, I've been a fool. You, you forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to these so-called super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what were for in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I did not myself burden you? Uh, forgive me for this wrong. So you'll note here that Paul makes it very clear in Second Corinthians twelve twelve that what he was doing was not some kind of universal thing that we're supposed to expect to have happen in Ohio of all places. You know, no, these were the signs of a true apostle that Paul was performing. And you'll note that there is a similar list given earlier in the book of Acts where Peter performed signs and wonders and things like that. I think it was Peter, even Peter's shadow, you know, if it touched somebody, they were healed. And those were the signs of a true apostle. Now, a little bit of a note here. Sign gifts such as these are, are, are validation and verification that somebody has truly been sent by God. And so you see sign gifts like these very rarely in Scripture. Moses performed them. You know, Keep in mind, nobody before Moses performed signs and wonders like Moses performed. Then they disappear again for a long time. The sign gifts reemerge with Elijah and Elisha and disappear again. And then they come back with Jesus. Yeah, these things were written, you know, these were the signs that he performed, John says, and these things were written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you might have life in his name. That's the end of the Gospel of John. And so Jesus performed signs and wonders, and he gave the ability to perform signs and wonders to his apostles. And the reason for this ability to perform signs and wonders is actually laid out for us very clearly in the opening chapters of Exodus, where God is commissioning Moses and Moses says, you know, that, uh, you know, what if they don't believe that you are the one who sent me? Uh, and so Moses is given then three signs. And so, in fact, it's Exodus 4.1. We'll l- listen to what it says. Exodus 4.1, Moses answered, Behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. They will say, Yahweh did not appear to you. So Yahweh said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, It's a staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent. Moses ran from it. But Yahweh said to Moses, Put out your hand, catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, so that they may believe that Yahweh, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. 
So the whole point is, is that these are the signs of the apostles that Paul was performing in Acts 19. These are not some kind of a standard set of operating signs and wonders that we're to be expecting today. In fact, these sign gifts have disappeared, and their purpose was to verify that God sent these people. And you're going to note then that the, the three groups that I listed, Moses, Elijah and Elisha, and the apostles, what are they significantly known for? Answer, these are the authors of Scripture. And so we are not to expect people to be operating in signs and wonders like this, because if they were, what they would be saying you know, needs to be added to our Bible because they are the sign that God has sent them. So what Ron Carpenter is engaging in here is charismatic chicanery. Paul's body and touch somebody else's body, then God was activated in heaven and his power was released. I'm preaching! Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call on the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, look what they were saying. We exercise you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Whew. So here's some Jewish priests. They don't even believe in Jesus. They don't believe he's the Messiah, but they're attracted to his power. So they go up to demon-possessed people. And some of you only know demon possession by a movie. I have seen it. I'm not talking about mentally ill. I'm not talking about somebody who needs attention in a church service. I'm talking about I've seen people's body move into shapes it ain't supposed to move into. I've seen people contort. I've seen heads move around. I've seen eyes glass over and turn colors. I've seen tongues that were a foot long with my eyes. It's a terrible thing to be enslaved body, soul, and will to the will of a demon. Yeah, I would agree there. But again, what he's done with the biblical text doesn't help us understand it at all properly. And so he's trying to have us operate in signs and wonders as well, which is not the point of Acts 19. So they went up to these people demon-possessed and said, We cast you out in the name of Jesus whom he knows. Let's look at the results. And the evil spirit answered, some of you need to know who are playing games. There will be a day evil will answer you. Evil will answer those who are playing games. Oh, boy. The evil spirit answered. That's a bad feeling when it talks back. And said, I know Jesus. I know Paul. I ain't never heard of you. I wonder if hell knows who you are. Uh, boy, that's not the point of that text either. I think you get the point. And uh, we did run a little bit long on our... <laughs> on uh, the first half of the hour. So uh, let's go ahead and take our break. If you'd like to email me, 
regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're going to be talk, uh, listening to Talk Bana as he tries to explain how the miraculous is normal for Christianity. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. No sneaky squid spirit formed against us will prosper. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, pansy, cunning, photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. presents Church Day Select. Thank you for calling Zonda Vendicta Bortker. How can I help you today, short or ma'am? Ah, so you're having trouble with your copy of the Grimoire of Modern Prayer. That is very unfortunate. Can I please ask for your name first? Ah, your name is Pete Billingham. Well, Mr. Billingham, this is Bob from Connecticut. I would be most pleased to assist you in any way that I can. You are very welcome, sir. Now, what is it about the Grimoire of Modern Prayer that troubles you so? I see. It seems you have opened a black hole in your living room and wish to have it removed. I am dreadfully sorry, but I am not qualified to help in such matters. I will have to transfer you over to my supervisor. Please do not bring my mother into this. I am transferring you now. Hello, and thank you for calling Zonda Detective Board. How can I help you today, sort of bad? I do not know what you mean, sir. My assistant and I are not the same person. I am Jim, Jimmy Jim Jim, Jimmy Jim Jim, from Rancho Cucamonga. I am sorry, sir, but I cannot understand you over the screaming. Did you just say birdie num-nums? Or that your cat was just sucked into the black hole? So very sorry about the little kitty cat. Now, there is something you can try. You can take a piece of pie and throw it into the black hole. I swear to you, it makes complete sense. You see, the black hole is feeding right now, and you need to trick it into thinking that it is full. Be sure not to give it pumpkin. That will only make it more angry. (laughs) 
Okay, that didn't work. You have one more chance before we use the emergency destruct procedures. Make yourself a non-fat decaf mocha with no whipped cream, seven pumps of chocolate, and skim milk. I know, why bother? Now, I want you to throw it into the black hole as well. Well, I guess it didn't work either. Maybe we should have used 2%. Please stay calm, sir. You now only have one of two options. Close the book and burn it, or close the book and throw it into the black hole. We're sorry, the number you have dialed is not in service at this time. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website. You'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Hey, everyone. It's Rex here to tell you about a product that I use on a daily basis. It's Coffee by Gillespie. It's delicious. It's got the caffeine you need to be a functioning member of society, and it's It's coffee. There's all sorts of different blends to choose from that are themed alongside the church calendar. So not only does it taste insanely good, but it's also liturgical. Somehow. All you have to do is order it online at gillespie.coffee. And it'll arrive at your door in a convenient, resealable bag filled with either whole bean or pre-ground coffee. I personally like mine as whole bean because it goes so well with milk. Yeah. Now that's what I call a balanced breakfast. So head on over to Gillespie.coffee and get some. That's G-I-L-L-E-S-P-I-E dot coffee. Rex out! Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that uh, 
the signs of the apostles were unique to the apostles and are not something that's normative for the church today. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us. Uh, It is a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our three friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. The other says become a patron. When you join our crew, you get to pick your rank in our crew, and rank is based upon your monthly commitment. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's Mate at $24.95 a month. From there, Master Gunner at $49.95 a month, and then Quartermaster at $99.95 a month. Joining our crew is a great way to support us. Of course, if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, you can click on the Donate button. If you'd like to become a patron via Patreon, click on the Become a Patron button. And, of course, if you'd like to support us the traditional way, you can make your gift payable, too. Fighting for the Faith, and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, let's reset a little bit, shall we? We're going to be listening to Talk Bonus. So this is another installment of the Prophetic Holy Orders Network Information Exchange Syndicate. Here we go. So I was having this wedding, and and we had we well we didn't have we shaba shaba shanda yeah 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 shaba oh shaba shaba wow shaba shanda. Useless devil. So much mice keep fence at doors. Yeah, that, that's right. That's uh, Heidi Baker and Shaba. So we're uh, heading over to Church Unlimited and Takbana and his sermon titled The God of Miracles. And talk about laying a heavy burden on people. He's going to basically say that uh, you've got to be uh, performing miracles and stuff, that this is God's will for you. And how do we know? Well, he's going to be taking some biblical text out of context to try to make it look like the Bible's teaching the things that he's saying, but the Bible ain't teaching none of the stuff he's saying. He's twisting God's word, and he is engaging in chicanery. And we'll note uh, the obfuscation on his part and the missing details when he claims that he knows people who are working in the miraculous and signs and wonders today. So let's get to it. Here is Takbana and the God of Miracles. So not long ago, the Holy Spirit spoke to me. Have you heard me talk about that? He's the God of miracles, and he wants to take miracles to another level in our church. And testimonies like... Yeah, see, already we're off to a bad start. So yeah, he's claiming that God the Holy Spirit spoke to him, that God the Holy Spirit wants to take miracles to a whole other level there in their church. Really? Really? The Holy Spirit told you that? The one I share are coming in. You'll hear a few more today. But in the Bible, as you read through the scriptures, miracles are the norm. It's, uh, it's, it's, they're not. Yeah, no, they're not. So this is a false narrative. And this is a very common false narrative within the uh, charismatic and narismatic churches that miracles are the norm. Let's just kind of walk through this. Noah performed zero miracles. Abraham, zero miracles. Uh, Isaac, Jacob, zero miracles. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, the first guy to really be a miracle worker is Moses. And uh, we learn from Exodus chapter 4 that the purpose of the signs that God gave Moses was to validate the fact that he was sent by God. Now, after Moses, Joshua, yeah, after the fall of Jericho, not so much on the miracle side. Miracles kind of disappear, you know, and, uh, you know, they come back again with none other than uh, the school of the prophets, Elijah and Elisha, again, authors of Scripture. Fascinating. And then they kind of taper off again. Yeah, after Isaiah, not a miracle worker. Jeremiah, definitely not a miracle worker. You know, you think of uh, Malachi, you think of, uh, you know, Zephaniah and Haggai and and Obadiah and these guys. Nehemiah, not a miracle worker. Now you get a little bit of God's miraculous intervention to help with, um, with with Daniel, but Daniel himself not a miracle worker. Neither was Shadrach, Meshach, or Abednego. And so fascinating. And then they totally taper off, disappear again until until Jesus shows up on the scene. And then Jesus' signs and wonders are the you know the testimony to validate his claim that he is none other than the Son of God in human flesh. And so then Jesus gives miracle working power to his Apostles, mm-hmm. yeah, you think of the, the Apostle Paul and his ability to you know, bless handkerchiefs and stuff. But we learn from 2 Corinthians 12, 12 and 13 that these were the unique signs of an apostle. And so Takbana, for him to say, oh, in the Bible, miracles are the norm. No, they are not. That's patently false. The exception. And tragically, we have accepted a gospel with limited miraculous power. And it's almost like we've given ground to the enemy. And, uh, but, but, but we've got to take back this. <laughs> the, the gospel with limited miraculous power. I think Jesus rising from the grave on the third day after he was crucified uh, under Pontius Pilate, that would be like, you know, a, not a limiting miraculous power gospel, but like the ultimate miraculous power gospel. You know what I mean? Found, uh, because miracles are the domain of Christianity. Miracles are the heartbeat of the church. No, they're not. They No, they're, they're not even the heartbeat of the church in the New Testament. Y- yeah, this what he's saying is false. Miracles are our zone. Miracles are where we operate best or where God wants us to operate best. The signature of Jesus is miracles. He went around. Yes, the signature of Jesus is miracles. In fact, let's go ahead and pull this up. I want to take a look at uh, John, I think I want uh, 20 or 21. And uh, I think it's at the tail end of 20 that um, that... That Yeah, here we go. John chapter 20, verse 30. Jesus did many other signs. Uh, and uh, semeon in, uh, in Greek is the same, uh, same word used for miracles. Signs and miracles are synonymous. So Jesus did any, many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. Now, important to note, Jesus himself makes it clear that of uh, any man born of a woman, that there was none greater than John the Baptist, and it is noted of John the Baptist, he performed no miracles, no signs. 
So, you know, what uh, what Takbana is saying here is this is a false narrative that then is going to be used to twist the scriptures. Because, of course, the immediate question is, well, why aren't you working in miracles? Why? What's holding you back, bro? You need to get out there and operate in the signs and wonders and stuff. Doing good, healing all who are oppressed of the devil and setting people free and releasing them. He is a God of miracles. If you need a miracle in your life, listen up, receive faith, because God's got a miracle waiting for you. It's not far away. Don't, yeah, this is manipulation. Be disheartened. Don't be discouraged. Don't, don't put, I'll get to it shortly, but God can do all the miracles, whatever you need. A day without a miracle is a boring day. Would you say that with... Yeah, that's pretty much every day for every Christian, by the way. And I would even say that's the everyday life of Takbana. Because when he claims he's performing miracles on a daily basis, he's lying through his teeth. And we'll even do a little fact-checking on one of the stories he's about to tell here. So day without a miracle, it's a boring day. Again, where in Scripture is it, am I told I'm supposed to be performing miracles daily? And where is it taught that... Oh, you, you know, it's it's a boring day. Something's wrong with your Christianity if you're not performing miracles. Me, please. A day without a miracle is a boring day. I declare over your life and mine, no more boring days. Yeah, he he declared it, so that fixed it right up. I mean, since he declared it, I mean, you're going to be operating in the miraculous, like you know, you know, fish swim in water. Apparently, we want a Christianity that is so exciting so powerful, so dramatically life-changing that the world loses all of its appeal and we run after God with passion and fire. That's yeah, the, again, um, the Christianity you're describing is not promised to Christians at all. Yeah, like nowhere. You are sounding like a raving fanatic, by the way. kind of Christianity I'm interested in, and I'm sure you are as well. So I'm going to share with you five keys to seeing a miracle. And I want you... So apparently it's all up to you. Five keys to see a miracle. And watch what he does with, like, key number one, which is proof that this guy is a false teacher extraordinaire. Listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit and try and discover which point is for you. You see, there's many keys to miracles. And maybe I'm going to share one, and you thought, man, that's the one I need to push in on because there is a miracle waiting for you. So please don't listen for a great message and great points. Listen for the voice of the Holy Spirit. Uh, yeah, I, I hear the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking to me when I read God's Word, the written Word of God. Because in God's Word is a power to bring breakthrough. See, the voice of God, you know, you can hope... And- You'll notice he's pointing us to something other than the actual voice of God, a voice that isn't the voice of God. Second uh, Timothy chapter 3 will help us out here. Second Timothy chapter 3 will help us quite a bit. And here's what the Apostle Paul writes to young Pastor Timothy in uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, 14. As for you, uh, Timothy, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. And let me make that a little bit bigger. The sacred writings, grammata, talking about, you know, actual sacred writings, the scriptures, right? Which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. 
all Scripture, Greek word here, graphe, again, writing, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Now, notice, Takbana isn't pointing us to the written Word of God. He's pointing us to some internal thingy that we're supposed to be hearing. The, you know, God's supposedly talking to us. Oh, this is God, and I'm trying to tell you something. Yeah, okay, okay God. Yeah, that, that's not God, by the way. That's something different. Think and push and pray and all the rest of it. But when you have a voice, the Word of God, then faith comes by hearing. And that's what releases a miracle. So listen carefully and say, Holy Spirit. So listen carefully. So if you can hear the voice of the Holy Spirit out there, Hello, this is the Holy Spirit. I'm trying to talk to you. And then you can hear his voice. Hello, can you hear me? Then that'll release a miracle. No biblical text says that either. We're on tuning in. What is the key to my miracle? The first thing we need to do is take all limits off God. Psalm 78, 41. Yes, again and again they tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. Uh, so apparently, it's key number one, you got to take the limits off God. You want to see miracles? See, you're probably not experiencing miracles. First thing you got to do is take the limits off God. And this is where it helps to know the original languages and know a little bit about the translation traditions that have come to us in the English language. Psalm 78.41. We're going to begin by taking a look at Psalm 78.41 in the English Standard Version. And let me get my Hebrew up uh, a little bit here. English Standard Version. So Psalm 78.41 And we're going to note that when you read it with a modern translation, it doesn't say limited God. Here's, In fact, let's apply our three rules for sound biblical exegesis, which are context, context, and context. Those are your three rules for sound biblical exegesis. And let's note here what's going on. Um, So God is kind of recounting, uh, his time with the Israelites in the wilderness, if you would. In spite of all this, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. So he made their days vanish like a breath, their years in terror. When he killed them, they sought him. They repented and sought God earnestly. They remembered that God was their rock, most the most high God, their redeemer. But they flattered him with their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast toward him. They were not faithful to his covenant. So this is recounting the history of Israel now. Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all of his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert They tested him again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power or the day when he redeemed them from the foe when he performed his signs in Egypt and his marvels in the fields of Zoan. He turned their rivers to blood so that they could not drink of their streams. Now a little bit of a note here as we're listening now to this historical narrative, this recounting of God's wonders and Israel's rebellion against them. We we read through verse 41, and it didn't say anything about limiting God. In fact, 
let's take a look at what's going on. They tested God and again and provoked him. Tava. Here's the Hebrew verb, Tava. They provoked the Holy One of Israel. Now, Tava, by the way, in Hebrew, uh, mark on the forehead, uh, yeah, it's you know, basically to provoke God, to, you know, to anger him, to you know, get him upset. That's what Tava means. Now, what's interesting here is, is that there is a translation, and I mean one, where, uh, where it uses the word um, limited, and it's in the King James Version, and this is not a good translation of the Hebrew Tavah. And you'll note that Hebrew, uh, Hebrew studies has changed a lot since uh, the time of the, uh, uh, of the King James Bible. And here's what it says, Yea, they turned back and tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. So here, uh, the King James is you know, basically taking the word Tavah and you know, making it limited. But that's not what Tavah means at all. And so we'll note then that uh, you, you really want to know what's going on here. Do a little comparative study. In fact, a little bit of a note here. If you're not sure about what a word means, sometimes you can get at it by comparing several good modern translations. So we took a look at the ESV, and in the ESV, 41 translates Tava as provoked. Let's take a look then at how it's translated in the NASB. NASB is a very, very literal translation. And here's what it says. And again and again, they tempted God and pained, pained or provoked, yeah, the Holy One of Israel. So uh, the uh, NASB is translating Tava here as pained, ESV as provoked. And I, both of them are getting at it, I think, fairly well. And then you take a look at uh, the NIV, the original NIV from 1984. Again and again, they put God to the text. They vexed, vexed, pained, provoked. But all of those are legitimate ways of pulling the Hebrew word tava into the English language. Limited, by the way, is not a good way at all. It's very confusing, uh, which is one of the reasons why I'm not a big fan of the King James, because its Hebraic scholarship is... Lacking, uh, you know, the Hebrew scholarship of 400 years ago wasn't as far along as we are today. So you'll note that all the the major translations of the modern era, you know, new translations translate Teva as vexed, pained, provoked. That gets at what Teva is all about. So what Takbana is doing here is he's just proof texting. So key number one, if you want to experience a miracle, is you got to take the limits off God. But Psalm 78.41 doesn't say anything for real about putting limits on God. That's not what the Hebrew is saying at all. And you'll note, reading, we read it out in context, that it, it wasn't saying that by doing so, they were, they were limiting God and his ability to perform miracles. Far from it. God was performing miracles despite their unbelief and atoning for their sins, despite their unbelief. And you know, their behavior vexed him, pained him, provoked him. That was the point here. So what um, <clears throat> Takbana here is doing is pulling a fast one. Our hearts, I've discovered my heart to so easily limit God. We just put all these restrictions on them, maybe from our history, our back. Okay, I'm going to back this up just a little bit. 
Let's take all limits off God. Psalm 78, 41. Yes, again and again, they tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. In our hearts, I've discovered my heart too, we so easily limit God. We just put... Yeah, no. No. See, you know, it's not like... How do you limit an all-powerful being? God is (laughs) all-powerful. Nothing is impossible for God, you know, except for lying and things like that. You know, and uh, so how do you limit God? Whoa there, God. I got to put some limits on there. You got all this power. We're going hey, to have to cite you for speeding with your power. You know, too much power in a, in a, in a construction zone here, God. Yeah, this is ridiculous. All these restrictions on them, maybe from our history, our background, our upbringing, whatever it might be. But we keep putting these limits on God. And you hear about some miracles. Yeah, well, yeah, of course that happens in Africa. Yeah, that happens in China and India. But it doesn't happen here. Friends, I believe that the God of Africa is the God of New Zealand. I believe there, there is only one God. But you're twisting God's word and putting a heavy burden on these people to perform miracles that they can't perform. I believe the same power is available wherever God's people are. The people in Africa do not have more Holy Spirit power than us. They have the same Holy Spirit. They have the same Jesus. We're all in the same domain. So we can all expect the impossible to happen. uh, Right? No, we can't expect the impossible to happen. God doesn't promise us the impossible, doesn't promise us the ability to operate in signs and wonders the same way the apostles did. Those were the signs of the apostles. Our own lives. You know, one reason we don't see extraordinary miracles is because we assume they won't happen. We just, you know, they just... Well, they just... Says which biblical text? Which biblical text says that miracles can't happen unless we assume they can happen? Hmm? I don't know of any biblical text that says that. In fact, you know, quite frankly, uh, the, when God parted the Red Sea for Moses, nobody saw that one coming. And God was basically saying, move forward. And, you know, and <laughs> so and it wasn't because of their belief that they, the God parted the Red Sea. You know, and if Jesus is resurrecting from the grave. A little bit of a note here. When you read through the Gospels, Jesus tells his disciples straight up, guys, I'm going to Jerusalem, going to be handed over to the Jews and the Gentiles. They're going to crucify me. I'm going to die and on the third day rise again. And they were scratching their head going, huh? What does he mean by that? Yeah, Jesus didn't rise from the grave on the third day because the disciples expected him to. In fact, they didn't. So what this guy is saying is straight up false. Too hard basket. So we don't expect it to happen. God wants us to change our thinking. We need to break the shackles off our minds that limit God's power. There are no shackles that can limit God's power. I, go ahead and limit God. Try it. It won't work. You know, good luck on that, by the way. Families, our circumstances. If our prayers do not intimidate us, they're too small. You should pray, pray and get frightened. Oh, wow, what was that? If they don't intimidate us, they're too small. When you know, Disciples came to Jesus and said, Jesus, teach us to pray. Jesus said, all right, when you pray, say, are you ready? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us 
from the evil one. Note when Jesus taught us to pray, we are to pray for, are you ready? Daily bread. Hmm. Notice Jesus didn't say, now make sure, boys, when you pray, you, it's got to be intimidating what you pray for. So don't pray for that daily bread stuff. I mean, anybody can have that. I mean, pray for something like uh, something outrageous. Pray for like a, a lifetime supply of bread, you know. Nope. Jesus said pray for daily bread. So what this guy is saying is false, straight up false, because when Jesus taught us to pray, he didn't say what he's this guy saying. He taught us to pray for minuscule things, you know, like daily bread. You know, it should scare us because that's honors God. God loves big prayers because he. Where in scripture does it say that? Is a very big God. When our faith is too. How big is God? Exactly. And how do I know my prayers are big enough? You see, this is, this is straight up false. It limits God. Matthew nine twenty nine. according to your faith, be it to you. So there's a boy has no fingers on one hand. Literally. So now he just quotes Matthew nine twenty nine, totally out of context. According to your faith, let it be, let it be to you. And now he's telling a story. He's going to regale us with a story. And, okay, we're going to note a few things about this story. There was a person. We don't know the name of the person. There was a child who was born without digits, no fingers at all, no fingers, no thumb. And he, we're going to hear him, Takmana, say that he went to a healing service. We're not sure which one, what day, you know. Um, s- strange, the, this, this story, because all of the details that give you the ability to validate and verify it, they're totally missing. So let me back this up just a little bit. Watch what he does. When our faith is too small, it limits God. Matthew nine twenty nine. according to your faith, be it to you. So there's a boy has no fingers on one hand, literally. Which hand? What's the boy's name? What country does the boy live in? Are there photographs of this child, this boy, with with his hand with no fingers, I'd like to see the before and after photos. We live in the days when people have cell phones, you know. They got smartphones. Everyone's got a camera in their pocket. I'd like to know some of the details here of this story. Five stubs. Pretty awful, really, if you think about it. And so he goes to a healing meeting. and Which healing meeting? Which country was the healing meeting performed in? Who was leading the healing meeting? What year was it? The first act of faith, I believe, is that the someone actually prays for the guy. Neville? Someone. Who? What's his name? Who's the fellow who prayed for the guy? Me, and there was a prayer line, a healing line. And I was walking down the line. I see in my corner's eye, there's a guy down there with uh, no fingers. I would pretend I didn't see him. And I'd go in the other direction. And now, note here what he, what Takmana just said is actually quite embarrassingly true. He just admitted that if he were doing a healing line or a prayer line, and there was a fellow with no fingers in the line, he wouldn't make eye contact and would go the other way. Why? And this is something that Benny Hinn does, by the way. You show up at a Benny Hinn um, revival healing service, and you're in a wheelchair or you have a visible physical illness, you know, or malady or handicap, 
you're going to be sent to the very, very, very back of the room. And then you, when it comes time for everybody to come up and receive their miracle, you're going to be ushered out of the building. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is well documented. You can find this on YouTube, by the way. Video documentarians have you know recorded this phenomenon. And it's quite simple because Benny Hinn only heals people of invisible ailments. Yep. Not not visible ones, and so Takmana here is saying, "Yeah, if the guy shows up in my healing line and and he's got no fingers, I'm not going to make eye contact with him." Listen to what he says. This is quite the um, the confession. Line, healing line. And I was walking down the line. And I see in my corner's eye. There's a guy down there with uh, no fingers. I would pretend I didn't see him, and I'd go in the other direction and find someone that's just got a headache. Right, because nobody can see a headache. Because you, you put it in the too hard basket. You think that's not going to happen. So I think the fact that they prayed for him was amazing. So he was prayed for. Then he turned and he walked away. As he was walking away, they heard pop. Who's they? Who heard pop? Who heard pop? You said they heard pop. Who's they? Another pop. Another pop. Another pop. And another pop. You're lying. You made this up. And this boy has got five brand new fingers. What's his name again? Show me the website where the before and after photos are of his. Was it, was it his right hand or left hand? You didn't say. Uh, we'll just say it's his right hand. Show me the before and after photos of his right hand without the fingers and then now with the new fingers. Which healing service was this? You note that this is how the scam works. So he, he's twisted God's word, and now he's claiming that proof that what he's saying is true are the miracles that occur you know, at healing services and places like that. And yet, you know, this miracle is held up as proof that this is true, yet we know none of the details. Hmm. And that's the common denominator. In the charismatic movement, no details, no names, no before and after photos, no anything at all. Just, just you got to trust the man of God who's preaching the word to you. But I don't trust this guy as far as I can throw him. And the reason I don't trust him is because he's twisting God's word very obviously. So I think you get the point. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Quick break, when we come back, uh, we're heading over to Saddleback and listen to Rick Warren about how to come back from emotional burnout. Apparently, it's taught in 2 Kings. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Your words have no power to create reality. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Hi, Rich Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... listening to Byron Christian Radio. Hey, you. Yeah, you. Listening to this program right now. 
Have you ever found yourself wishing there was more Fighting for the Faith content that you could listen to and share with your friends? Well, you're in luck, because we now at Pirate Christian Media have a YouTube channel that we upload content to on a weekly basis. We got programs like Twist Busters, You Don't Have to Be a Cessationist, Messed Up Church, Exclusive Skype Interviews, Pirate Gang Conversations, and our most popular segment, Dumpster Fire. So if you're looking for some extra pirate Christian media goodness in your life, head on over to YouTube and search for Fighting for the Faith and subscribe. Oi, Captain, we got ourselves a heretic. And exactly how do ye know that she be a heretic? She be endorsing the health and wealth heresy. Does he be speaking the truth? Jesus died to make us rich. <laughs> and what exactly do we do with heretics? Oh, uh, we throw them in the boo box. No, no, no. We preach the gospel to them. What if, um, the heretic doesn't repent? Then we throw them in the boo box. (laughs) To err is to heretic. To R is to pirate. Get yourself over to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash Refermanda and purchase yourself a copy of the game Refermanda and join the fight for the faith today. Two of fighting for the faith. Let's do this right. The Ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Saddleback Church, uh, Rick Warren presiding. Uh, The name of the message, How to Come Back from Emotional Burnout. (laughs) Yeah, I had no idea that the Bible teaches steps on how to overcome emotional burnout. I had no clue. Apparently, we're going to be in 2 Kings, story in the aftermath of Elijah on Mount Carmel, and uh, we'll note that uh, Rick Warren is a regular featured uh, person on Fighting for the Faith and has been since the beginning of the program, and there's a reason for that, because he is a Bible twister extraordinaire, and in this particular case, we're going to watch him mangle God's word up pretty good in a bad way. And try to turn it into some kind of a self-help thing for overcoming emotional burnout. 
which it's not. So let me go ahead and back off on the music. And without any further ado, here's Rick Warren and how to overcome, how to come back from emotional burnout. Here we go. Now this weekend, I want to share part five in my series on how God turns setbacks into comebacks. You know, all of us have to deal with Many, many different kinds of setbacks in life. God turns setbacks into comebacks. Really? How is that a biblical teaching? So it just makes you wonder, is he going to turn around and turn Jesus' cross into an example of the ultimate setback? But don't worry, he rose from the grave. So talk about a comeback. You talk about adventures and missing the point. Please, please don't do that health, relational, job setbacks, career setbacks, personal setbacks, spiritual setbacks, many, many other kinds. But today I want us to look at what do you do when a setback leaves you emotionally empty? You know, one of the common negative side effects of setbacks is that they can drain your emotional tank empty so you've got no reserves for dealing with daily life. You know what I'm talking about. You just feel empty. You feel like you're running on fumes. You got nothing left to give. You drag yourself through the day. Now, in last week's message, Sheila Walsh referred to Elijah. And this week, I'd like to go back and take a little closer look at the life of this guy named Elijah, because Elijah clearly illustrates for us how God helps us when we're drained emotionally. Um. What? How how do you figure? Now, if you know anything about this man named Elijah in the Bible, you might not expect him to have experienced emotional burnout because God did so many amazing things, so many miracles in and through Elijah's life. And yet the Bible tells us in James 5.17, quote, Elijah was a man just like us. What does that mean? It means he was susceptible to the same troubles and the same temptations, same moods that we all face every single day. Now, from one particular setback in Elijah's life that we're going to look at today, God shows us both the warning signs of when you are emotionally empty. You need to know these signs. You need to know the gauges in your own life. And it also, more importantly, gives us the steps that God uses to refill your life with hope and joy and love when what the old testament story of elijah gives us the steps by which god refills our emotional joy and stuff what are you doing here you have just hit bottom your tank is emotionally empty now there's a fascinating story in first kings chapter 19 uh, but actually, now he's not going to read it out. He's going to give us the highlights, the Rick Warren synopsis, paraphrase, if you would, of the story. It starts a chapter before in chapter 18. And here's the background. Israel was being led by a very wicked king named Ahab and his wife named Jezebel. You've probably heard of them. The nation had fallen into uh, moral bankruptcy. The, the whole nation had turned away from God to worshiping stone idols. And they were even sacrificing their children. It was a very brutal, bloody uh, uh, religion to, uh, to idols named Baal. There was only one true prophet of God left in the nation. His name was Elijah. And one day, Elijah just gets fed up with all of this idolatry, and he issues a challenge. He goes, how long are you guys, the nation, how long are you going to waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. 
And if the idol Baal is God, well, then follow him. And he boldly suggested, let's have a God contest. This is a great idea. And he's pretty bold in it. So the entire nation gathers on Mount Carmel in the land of Israel. And Elijah says, okay, here's here's the plan. We're going to have a God contest. We're going to sacrifice two bulls. And we'll let the 450 prophets of this false god named Baal, you guys go pray to your idol, and then I'll pray to the real god. And here's the key. Whoever answers with fire wins the God contest. And after that, uh, we will worship and serve whoever God wins. And the people goes, great idea. Well, that's not exactly how that went down, but we'll just say that's close. The prophets of Baal, they go first. And they build their uh, their their um, wood, and they they put the the cows uh, on on the wood, and they pray all day, and they chant all day, and they dance all day, and nothing, of course, happens. And of course, Elijah is teasing them the whole day. In fact, he even makes fun of him. He says, "Is your God asleep?" At one point, this is actually in the Bible. He says, "Maybe your God's going to the bathroom right now. He can't hear you. Maybe you need to shout a little louder. Maybe he's sitting on the toilet." Yeah, that's pretty much what Elijah did say, by the way. Yes, that is accurate. And he makes fun of them. And, of course, they fail. That evening, Elijah says, okay, let's really, it's my turn, so let's make this a real contest. Here's what I want you to do. I don't, I'm not just going to call on God to, to, to send down fire, but I want you to soak the wood on my side of my sacrifice with 12 barrels of water so that the wood is actually waterlogged. Okay, we're going to make it a little tougher for me. And then Elijah prays a very simple prayer. It's in 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 36 to 38. It's here on the screen. And it says this, At the time for the evening sacrifice, Elijah went up to the altar and he prayed. It's a very simple prayer. Lord, I know you're the God of Abraham and Isaac and Israel. Now prove that you are the real God and that I am your servant, and show these people that you told me to do this. Lord, answer my prayer so these people will know that you're God and that they will change their minds. And it says, out of that simple prayer, he didn't have to pray all day, it's just a couple sentence prayer. Then the fire from the Lord came down and burned up, not just the sacrifice and all the wood, but it also burned up the stones and the ground around the altar, and it dried up all the water in the ditch. Now, the people are astounded. They began to worship God, and they rose up, and they go, all you other false prophets, uh, uh, you have been leading us astray for years, and they got so mad at all the false prophets, they killed them. Yes, they did kill the false prophets at the command of Elijah, and the sacrificing of their children that these false prophets had been requiring. And there was a great spiritual revival. But, of course, with every mountaintop, there's a valley. And in the next scene, chapter 19 of 1 Kings, uh, uh, Queen uh, Jezebel hears about it, and these were her personal false prophets, and she gets ticked. She's mad. Now, notice on your outline, at the top of your outline, 1 Kings 9 19 of verses 1 to 5, and then verse 10, it says this. So King Ahab told his wife Jezebel everything that Elijah had done and how he had ordered the death of all her false prophets of Baal. So the queen sent this threat to Elijah. 
may my gods strike me dead if I don't kill you by this time tomorrow. Wow, it's a death threat from the queen. Elijah, it says, was afraid, and he ran for his life. He left his servant in the town of Beersheba, and he walked for a full day into the desert. Finally, he came to a broom tree, and he collapsed under its shade. And then he prayed that he might die. He said, God, I've had enough. Take my life. Just let me die, for I'm no better than my ancestors. And exhausted, he fell asleep under the broom tree. Later, down in verse 10, it says, Elijah told God, God, I have always worked hard for you, Lord, but your people have abandoned your covenant. They've destroyed your places of worship and they've murdered all your true prophets. And I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. Uh, This guy's on the edge. He's empty, emotional. He's on. What? So you're performing psychoanalysis on Elijah. And you've determined him, determined that he's on the edge and he's emotionally burned out. Um, maybe he's really afraid because Jezebel has made good her threats when it comes to exterminating the lives of God's prophets. Yeah. So, I mean, he's on the run. He's... <laughs> He's showing up every Saturday night on Israel's most wanted. His, you know, his sketch is on all, you know, is on the wall of all of the post office in Israel. Jezebel generally did a pretty good job of putting to death God's prophets and he came out of hiding. He'd been hiding for 3 years and now she's got it out for him. This doesn't sound like emotional burnout to me. What had been what had Elijah been doing? For the last three years, not working, God provided for them, uh, him and the widow of Zarephath, you know, a miracle which made it so that their bread and oil never ran out. So he didn't need to spend money to have, make bread and stuff like that. So he's been hiding. You know, what, what, what exactly was he emotionally burned out from? All the ministry work he'd been doing? And how did you come to uh, this assessment and evaluation of Elijah's mental state and its fragility. The edge of burnout. Now, from this story, we can draw a lot of lessons uh, from what happened that deal with your life and my life today and how God turns setbacks into comebacks. This story, first of all, illustrates 10 signs of emotional burnout. 10 signs, they're all in a... Oh, man. So he's going to be reading these into the text. Elijah's life. Uh, when your emotional tank is empty, you need to know these signs so you can respond. But more importantly, it teaches us how God refills your emotional tank when you're empty. Okay, so let's get right into it. First, how do I know when my emotional tank is empty? Well, look at what Elijah says and look at what Elijah does. There are 10 things. They're all underlined in that passage there on your outline. Let's just go through them very quickly. First, I know I'm emotionally empty. My tank is empty. When that happens, number one, fear creeps into my life. You start becoming more fearful. The Bible says Elijah was afraid. When fear comes into your life, it's because your emotional tank is, is empty. Number two, I find myself running away from things. 
when I'm running out of energy. <sighs> Elijah ran away from Jezebel because she threatened to have him killed. <laughs> Emotionally. The Bible says Elijah ran for his life. Question, what are you running from right now? Oh, this is painful. So, talk about a total twisting of this text. That's not what this passage is about at all. What are you running from? It's a sign that you may be emotionally low on gas. Number three, I start backing out of relationships. Notice the third thing it says, he left his servant in the town of Beersheba. This is a... <laughs> He's on the run for his life. He's not backing out of his relationships. I had been with him for a long, long time, and he's just walking away from him. Are you walking away from a relationship? Have you ever stopped to think that, you know, if Elijah's found with his servant, his servant will die as well by parting ways what he was doing was protecting the life of his servant that can be drained that can sh show that you're emotionally drained from all the stuff you're going through number four you might write this down i make foolish decisions impulsively when i'm emotionally drained i make foolish decisions impulsively it says he walked for a full day into the desert okay question how smart's that um, Jezebel isn't in the desert. Going to the desert is a means of saving his life. To walk for a full day in the desert. First, he's headed in the wrong direction. And second, how do you know what direction he was heading? He's got no plan. He's not taking water with him. He's walking in, in the wrong direction with no plan. That's a sign that you're on the edge of burnout a sign that you're making foolish decisions impulsively. Number five, I push myself past my physical limits. Write that down. If you're doing that, you're headed for burnout. You push yourself past physical limits. I, I can get more done than I think it does. It says he collapsed under the shade of that broom tree, okay? He had just kept walking and walking into the desert until finally he just collapsed. He's on the run for his life. Six, when you're physically or spiritually or emotionally burned out, when you are on the edge of, of emotional emptiness, my work seems pointless. Notice the phrase there. He says, I've worked hard, but he says, I really haven't seen any results. I haven't seen anybody change. He says, nobody's making any change. The, the, the nation's still in a mess. And they're still serving false gods and they're offering sacrifices to idols. And he blamed himself for things that weren't his fault. Now, the nation's falling apart and he... Now, notice that uh, Rick Warren isn't reading the text. Uh, no, he's not reading the text at all, and which is actually uh, quite uh, telling. Because if he were reading the text, he wouldn't be able to say some of the things he's saying. So this is an exegesis. We're, uh, we're witnessing here. We're listening to <laughs> Rick Warren eisegeting and finding things in the text that are not there. So 1 Kings 19.1. I, I know I, I probably said 2 Kings earlier. It's 1 Kings 19.1. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. 
how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I don't make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. So no, Jezebel sent a messenger. The queen is going to have you killed by this time tomorrow. If you had 24 hours to live, what would you do? So it's not like Elijah is going to stick around and go, well, you know, I've only got 24 hours. He's fleeing for his life. So then he was afraid. He rose, and the text says, he ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. He's running for his life. He's not experiencing emotional burnout at all. First Kings 19.4. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. Why? Because he's running for his life. He came and sat down under a broom tree. He asked that he might die, saying, It's enough now, O Lord, take away my life. I, I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and he slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water, and he ate, and he drank, and he lay down again. And the angel of Yahweh came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose, and he ate, and he drank, and he went in the strength of that food for forty days and for forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. Wrong way? I seriously doubt it. You see, you'll note now, now the allusions to ancient Israel's wilderness wanders. Forty days, forty nights. And you'll note that the bread was made on hot stones. Think of the temptation of Jesus when he was in that exact same wilderness to turn bread into stones. It's just, yeah, you start to see what's going on here, and the story is actually quite fascinating. So what Rick Warren here is doing, he's, he's narcissist, narcissistically psychologizing this and turning it into some kind of steps for overcoming emotional burnout when that's not what this passage is about, even in the slightest. Takes it personally. He goes, I'm a failure. You know, one of the great causes of burnout is trying to control everything, this Atlas Syndrome. Friend, you can resign as general manager of the universe. It's not going to fall apart because the whole world does not rest on your shoulders. There are a lot of things that are beyond your control, and you're not responsible for other people's response in life. You know, as a pastor, I have to deal with this all the time. It's my responsibility to teach God's truth, but I'm not responsible for what you do with it. If I was... Yeah, you've clearly failed in your responsibility, miserably so. Worry myself to death. Okay, he, he was just taking too much responsibility. Number seven, a seventh warning sign that your emotional tank is empty. I complain that I want to quit and give up. That's what Elijah did. Notice he says, God, I have had enough. He's like telling God, okay, I'm up to here. I'm at the end of my rope. I'm ready to throw in the towel. I'm, I'm ready to jump off the cliff. And when your emotional tank is low, you lose your vision, you forfeit your future, you forget your goals, you just want to give up. You want to stop caring. Elijah says, it's just not worth it. I'm ready to throw in the towel. Well, let me give you a couple more. 
Number eight, when your emotional tank is low, you feel isolated and attacked. I feel isolated, I feel lonely, I feel attacked. The, uh, notice the phrase Elijah says, I'm the only one left. Okay? He's having a pity party. I'm the only one left. And the, yeah, not exactly. They're trying to kill me too. Now, the truth is, Elijah's exaggerating the problem. We always do that when we're emotionally low. We make the problem worse than it really is. Because the truth is, in Acts 19, excuse me, in 1 Kings 19, verse 18, look at this on the screen. God says this, actually, Elijah, there are 7,000 other faithful souls in Israel who have not bowed down their knees to the false god of Baal. So so now he's fast-forwarded into the rest of the story, and... So basically, apparently, God is not not having any of uh, Elijah's pity party. <clears throat> so forty days, forty nights to Horeb to the Mount of God. Acts First Kings nineteen nine. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. Behold, the word of Yahweh came to him, and he said to him, "What are you doing here, Elijah?" And he said, I, "I've been very jealous for Yahweh, the God of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth." For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars. They've killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before Yahweh. And so, behold, Yahweh passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains, broke in pieces the rocks before Yahweh. But Yahweh was not in the wind, and after the wind an earthquake. But Yahweh was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but Yahweh was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came to him a voice to him saying, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for Yahweh, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars. They've killed your prophets with the sword and I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. So Yahweh said to him, Go, return your way to the wilderness of Damascus. Notice he doesn't send them to uh, Israel, sends them to Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be the king of, over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be the king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abba Mahaloah, you shall anoint to be the prophet in your place. And one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. And you're going to note here that God is agreeing to let Elijah finish his course. Elisha is going to be anointed as the prophet in his place, and shortly after that, Elijah is going to be taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire. So Rick Warren is not properly telling the story, and the ESV makes it very clear that God says, yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel who have not bent the knee to Baal. He's promising Elijah that he will give him that he will there will remain a, a remnant of those who are faithful to God and have not worshiped Baal. You're not the only guy. You're not the only one. Quit having a pity party. There's seven thousand other people who've been faithful to me who haven't gone off the rails, who've been 
true to 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 me. Yeah, that's not how the story goes. And notice Rick Warren, by not reading it out, is changing the whole warp and woof of this account. But Elijah is so drained emotionally, his view of reality is distorted. I mean, think about this. He's just had this enormous God contest where he wins against 450 false prophets in front of the entire nation. And now just one woman with an empty threat is a setback, and he's... Yeah, do you think um, Jezebel's threats are empty? How many of God's prophets had she put to death? Off to hide in a cave. Think about this. If Jezebel had actually intended to kill him, wouldn't she have sent a hit man instead of a messenger to warn him? Why do you send a messenger to warn a guy and say, I'm going to kill you? Just send a guy and kill him. Why warn him so he can escape? So he's not thinking straight because he's emotionally drained. Number nine, the ninth sign that you are on the verge of burnout is I compare myself to others and I feel bad about me. Now, we've talked about this many times. The Bible says anytime you compare yourself to other people, it's foolish. The Bible tells us not to compare ourselves with others. And, and, and Elijah says, for I'm no better than my ancestors. Uh, we depreciate our worth when we feel burned out. We, we put ourselves down mentally. We, the self-talk replays over and over in your mind. I'm nobody. My life doesn't matter. My, my work doesn't matter. My life has no value. Note the phrase, I'm no better than. That's a comparative phrase. Yeah, saying he's no better than his forefathers He's admitting his own weakness and sin. How is that a bad thing? One of the main causes of being emotionally drained is you start comparing yourself to other people. You compare everything. And yeah, he compared himself to other people and found that he was sinful just as they are. He's not comparing himself and going, you know, I'm a lot better than they are. And he's not saying I'm worse. He's saying I'm the same. And you start motivating yourself with criticism. I must, I should, I have to. And you become hypercritical and you become your own worst critic. Finally, you feel guilty for not getting it all done and just say it's hopeless. Friends, what I'm talking about right now is called emotional reasoning. It's focusing on your feelings instead of the facts. I feel it, so it must be true. You know, every pro athlete, every pro performer, speaker, musician, minister, they often get discouraged after great performance. After every mountaintop, there is a valley. You're emotionally depleted, so you can't think straight. And what you have to do is you have to learn to ignore your emotions, learn to ignore your feelings. I don't ever make any decision the day after Easter or Christmas because my feelings are highly unreliable. You know, I, I remember one time when Kay and I were on... Couldn't be more unreliable than your exegesis, which is like ultimately unreliable honeymoon and i said you know i don't really feel married <laughs> she said well it doesn't matter whether you feel it or not buster you're married maybe you say i don't feel god is with me well feelings lie that's emotional reasoning let me give you number 10 a 10th sign that your tank your emotional tank is empty is what elijah did and that is i think death might bring relief Notice it says, Elijah prayed 
that he might die. And he says, take my life, Lord, just let me die. Yeah, Elijah, by the way, didn't die, and God made it made it so that as soon as he was done with these anointings, he was done. He was taken to heaven. Finished. Now, let me just say to those of you who are listening right now, whether you're on the Internet or on Daily Hope or in one of our campuses, maybe you felt that just dying would be the way to relief. And you think maybe taking my life would be the way to do that. Don't. Elijah is not engaging in a threat of self-harm. Don't. Taking your life is a permanent solution to a temporary mood. Don't. There are people who care. We care. We love you. And you need to get help. And don't. Never make a major decision when you're depressed. Now, of these 10 things, you look at that as a checklist, looking at that. Now do you realize why James tells us in James 5, 17, Elijah was a person just like us? Because you can identify with a lot of those 10 things. Now, that's good enough in itself. But this passage has even more to share with us. And it teaches us how God refills our emotional tank. And I want you to notice now the next Now, I want you to see just what Rick Warren did there with James. He said, so is it any wonder why James said that Elijah was a man just like us? Because, you know, can can you see? I mean, take a look at this laundry list of of being emotionally compromised and burned out and all this kind of stuff. And see, that's why James said that. No, when you read James in context... James makes it very clear why he said what he said about Elijah being like us. So our three rules for sound biblical exegesis, especially when we're dealing with Rick Warren, are context, context, and context. James 5.13, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders, say pastors of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruits. The reason why James was invoking the fact that Elijah is made of the same stuff we are is not because Elijah was emotionally burned out. It's because Elijah prayed, and God answered his prayer, and we're called to pray. That's the point of what's going on in James 5. So again, Rick Warren just egregiously twisted yet another passage of Scripture. Three things that God does in spite of all the things that uh, uh, Elijah did when he ran out of gas emotionally. Okay, so let's look at these three things. Write these down. Number one, The first way God refills my tank is God makes me rest 
my body. God makes me rest my body. Psalm 23, 2 and 3 from the most famous psalm in the Bible is this. He makes me lay down in great, lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores myself. Soul. Sometimes God has to make you lie down because you're not smart enough to do it yourself. He's going to force you to actually recharge your body physically because you're physical. You can't be spiritually and emotionally uh, uh, strong while you're physically depleted. This is what happened to Elijah. First Kings 19, five to seven. It says, then Elijah laid down and slept under the broom tree. Yeah, because he was running for his life. But as he was sleeping, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. And he looked around and he saw some baked bread or on hot stones and a jar of water. So he's got some donuts. And so he ate and he drank and he laid down again and he went back to sleep. And it says, then the angel of the Lord came back to him again and touched him again and said, get up again and eat some more. For there's a long journey ahead of you. So Elijah got up again and he ate and drank again and his strength was revived. You know what I love about God is how practical he is, that the antidote to uh, to Elijah's burnout was eat and sleep and eat and sleep. <laughs> God's first prescription was food and rest and relaxation. God did not scold Elijah. He didn't say, come on, man, you're having a pity party. He didn't give him a lecture. He just let him sleep. Sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is go back to bed. Take a nap. Psalm 127, verse 2 in the Living Bible says, God wants his loved ones to get their proper rest. So note here, now we're quoting verses out of context and applying them to Elijah's rest in the wilderness after he was running for his life and you know, and turning it into some kind of principle and application that I need to uh, apply to my own life. Yeah, no, this is horrible. Vince Lombardi, the great football coach who said, you know, fatigue makes cowards of all of us. It's amazing how different things look after good night's sleep. So the first thing God wants to do is if you're emotionally over the edge and you're drained and you're on the edge of burnout, he said, you need to take care of your body. Kay and I have a phrase at our house we call control the controllables. There are a lot of things you can't control. You can't control what you eat. You can't control your sleep. You can't control what you do. And some of those things in your schedule, control what you can control. God wants you. He makes you rest your body. That's the first thing. Some of you might need to go get a checkup with the doctor if you've been going through depression. It's not a sin to be sick. It's not a sin to be depressed. So go and maybe get a physical checkup. Do whatever you need to do. Now, here's the second thing God did. First, he dealt with his physical needs. Eat, sleep, eat, sleep, eat, sleep. That's his first antidote to his, his uh, depression, his burnout, his, his empty tank, emotional tank. Second, God encourages me to release my frustrations. What? How many times have you heard me say this? Revealing your feeling is the beginning of healing. And we find that in the next... Oh, this is painful. Next few verses. First Kings 19, 8 and 9. It says this. Next, Elijah traveled 40 days to get to Mount Sinai, 
the mountain of God. You know this mountain is where God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, yep. a very famous mountain. And it says there he, Mo, uh, Elijah, came to a cave where he spent the night. So he's, he's run across the desert. He spent the night in a cave uh, in, at Mount Sinai. But the Lord said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here? And then Elijah said, and in the next few verses, Elijah just unloads his complaints and his frustrations. Now, he petitions God. He prays. You know, and I think even uh, uh, Sheila mentioned this last week, whenever God asks you a question, he already... Notice he had Sheila Walsh deliver the um, sermon the previous week. Women preaching is forbidden by God in his word. When God says to Elijah, what are you doing here? God already knew why Elijah... He wanted Elijah to own up to why he was there. And Elijah's answer to that question, what are you doing here in a cave in Mount Sinai was to start complaining of all the things. And in, and in that, um, God says, I know, Elijah, you're carrying a bundle of emotions. So he says, what's bugging you? Yeah, now you're totally adding to the text. That's not what it says at all. And I read it out before you can get here so that people would identify and be able to say, yeah, that's not what the text said at all. Get it off your chest. It's okay. Spill your guts. God, God did not tell Elijah to spill his guts. Elijah to blow off some steam. And in that cave and in his prayer, Elijah vents his frustration. And he actually, if you go through this passage, uh, specifically deals with six emotions. Verse 3, he vents his fear. Verse 10, he, he vents his anger. Uh, verse 4, he vents his re, he, uh, vents resentment. Uh, verse 10, second part, loneliness, low self-esteem, back up in verse 4. We're... Elijah vented low self-esteem. You're, you're kidding, right? In verse 10, uh, he says, I'm afraid I'm bitter, I'm angry, I'm lonely, I'm worried, I'm depressed. Here's the point. God isn't shocked when you can complain to him. He'll listen, and he'll listen to you until you run out of words. Have you ever wondered why some of the Psalms are in the Bible? Because every emotion known to man is covered in the Psalms. In many Psalms, David is just unloading. It's kind of cathartic. He goes, God, right now life sucks. I don't like what's going on. And, I don't, and he just complains. You know what? God put those in the Bible for a reason, to show that it's okay for you to release your frustration. You got to rest your... Yeah, those are prayers, by the way, not just merely Psalms. They are prayers, and they teach us to pray. Body, that's the first step back to refilling your tank. Rest your body, and you got to release your frustration. That's the second step back to refilling... Yeah, these are not steps we're supposed to follow. Your tank. So if you're feeling down, if you're feeling empty, you've had a setback and it's caused you to just lose the joy, lose the hope. Lose yeah, I'm having a setback here because of your Bible twisting and it's causing me to lose joy in your preaching. Lose the love, lose the enthusiasm in life. Then you just need to tell God how you feel. First Peter 5, 7 says, cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. Just pour out your heart to Jesus. Uh, by the way, let me give you a little tip. It helps to share with friends and a small group or a counselor. Uh, that's why I always encourage everybody to get in a small group. You know, out on the patio at your campus, uh, there will be people out there who 
will help you learn to sign up to a small group if you're not. You know, when I'm out on the patio... So now a commercial for small groups in the midst of this total botching of God's Word. People share their hurts with me, and they go, they'll say, you know, Pastor Rick, I've never told this to anybody. Uh, first place, I get excited because I know they're going to have some healing. But usually my first question is, are you in a small group? Because if you're in a small group, revealing your feeling is the beginning of healing. <sighs> Says no biblical text anywhere. Now there's a third thing that God does to help restore and refill our tank when we're empty after a setback. Okay, rest your body. Okay, rest your body and and uh, release your frustrations. Then number three, God tells me to remember and refocus on Him. I need to remember what He said. I remember who he is. I remember all his promises, and I refocus on him. You get your eyes off your problem, off the troubles, off the trials, off the temptation, and start looking at Jesus. You get a fresh awareness of God's power. Yeah, why don't you tell me a few things about Jesus? That might help me. God's presence, God's personality. This is the third step in Elijah's recovery. And it's found in the next couple of verses, 1 Kings 19, verses 11 to 13. Now here's the instructions. The Lord said to Elijah, go stand in front of me in the mountain and I will pass by you. And then a very strong wind blew past, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after that, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And then there was a wildfire, but the Lord was not in the fire. Then there was a quiet gentle sound, a whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he covered his face with his coat and he went out and he stood at the entrance to the cave. And the voice said, Elijah, why are you still here? <laughs> He's asking the same question again. God said, God says, I, I want you to get alone with me because I got something for you to see. And, and God puts on a multimedia event extravaganza for Elijah. First, a, her, a wind and hurricane and then an earthquake and then a firestorm and finally a small whisper. What in the world is God doing in all this? He's demonstrating his power. And the point is, Elijah, you're worried about one woman. I'm in control here. You can relax. You see, the root of, of burnout, the root of being emotionally empty, is you're trying to play God. Yeah, again, God gave Elijah what he wanted, but he didn't kill him. Elijah didn't die. Elijah finished his course, and then God took him to heaven shortly after this. Yeah, it's just unbelievable. It's like I'm reading a totally different Bible than Rick Warren is. You're trying to be God. You're trying to control everything, and you can't. You know, Frank Sinatra sang his famous song. It was actually the theme for his life. I did it my way. But you know what his last words were when he died? I'm losing it. Those were Frank Sinatra's last words. I'm losing it. Why? Because he wasn't in control of his life as much as he thought he was, and you aren't either. Let me share a, a, another verse from another guy who was emotionally empty. He was another prophet, and his name was Jeremiah. 
And one of the books that he wrote is called Lamentations, which means my complaints. And he writes it for posterity. He is releasing his frustrations to God, his lamentations. He's complaining to God. God, I don't like. Yeah, it's a little more than that. Lamentations is the lament over Israel's idolatry and refusal to repent and the destruction of Israel and Judah and Jerusalem as a result. Have you have you read the book? But Jeremiah finds the antidote to his emotional emptiness by remembering how good God is. And by doing this third step of refocusing and remembering, remembering what God is like and refocusing on what God has said and his promises. And, and in this verse that I want you to look at, and I, I, I want you to write this out on a card and put it in your, on your mirror or on your, your dashboard or on your, your refrigerator. He mentions five specific qualities that pull him out of his depression when his emotional tank is empty. It's Lamentation 3, 19 to 24. Now, let me read this to you, and I want you to just let this savor and simmer and soak in your mind. Jeremiah says this. Remember, he's, he's down. He's, he's, he's empty. He says, just thinking of my troubles and my wanderings. What's wanderings? It means you're lost. You're, you don't know where you're going. You think, when I think of my troubles, when I think of, I haven't the slightest idea where I'm going in life. When I think of my troubles and my wanderings, it fills me with sadness and bitterness. He says, it's all I ever think about, and I'm depressed. But this is the big change here. Then, but then I remember. This is step three, remember and refocus. But then I remember something that fills me with hope. Okay, you ready? I hope you're listening right now at every campus, listening online, because what I'm about to read to you from the Word of God will give you an amazing new shot of hope. He says, then I remember something that fills me, fills me with hope. And he says five things. Number one, the Lord's steadfast love never ends. His unfailing mercy keeps me from being wiped out. Number three, because of his great... Tell me about God's unending, steadfast mercy and love. I bet if you tried, you could connect it very easily to the cross of Jesus Christ, which we haven't heard a thing about in the sermon. Oh, this is just miserable. Psychobabble. Faithfulness. Each new day, he is, number four, always kind to me. So deep in my heart, I say to myself, the Lord is all I need. He is my, number five, real hope. Those five things will pull you out of depression, out of burnout, will refill your tank if you will remember. And It's not the purpose of Lamentations or 1 Kings 19. The the things you're saying here, this will pull you out of depression. I mean, I'm sorry. That that would be like me saying Snickers bars will uh, cure you of schizophrenia. I'm sorry, but you that is a simplistic solution to a complex mental problem. Refocus on those five qualities of God. You know, a lot of people 
like chocolate when they're depressed. A lot of people turn to sugar when they're depressed. Let's go get some ice cream. Let's go have some pie. And a lot of people turn to sugar as an antidote when they're emotionally empty. They want to fill up on sugar. Today, I want to give you a different kind of sugar to turn to when you're emotionally empty. So everybody get out a pencil and write this down. Here's Pastor Rick's prescription. It's God's sugar pill for you. Remember these five things. You do know a sugar pill is a placebo, right? U-G-A-R. Remember, God's steadfast love. Write that down. That's the S. Remember God's unfailing mercy. That's the U. Remember God's great faithfulness. That's the G. Remember God is always kind. That's the A. Remember God gives real hope. That's the R. S-U-G-A-R. That's real sugar. Steadfast love. Unfailing mercy. Great faithfulness. Always kind. Real hope. That'll give you a, a, a sugar high. It's a high that won't bring you down. Yeah, so Rick just came up with the acronym SUGAR and he played it a little fast and loose in his acronym, and that's just going to solve all your problems right there. Unbelievable. It's the love of God. Build your life on those five qualities of God that Jeremiah depended on that pulled him out of his sadness, his grief, his depression, his emptiness after his setback. Now, finally... Here's the last thing that God says to Elijah. 1 Kings 19, 15 and 16. He says to Elijah, Elijah, go back. Go back. Go back the way you came. He goes, go back the way you came to the desert of Damascus. And he says, when you get there, here's what I want you. I want you to anoint. What's, what's anoint? It means I'm, you're going to appoint some other people to help you. I want you to anoint Haziel. No, not to help him. After he anoints Elisha, he's pretty much done. The end. I want you to anoint a guy named Jehu, and I want you to anoint a guy named Elisha. When I want you to go back to where you came from, and when you get there, I want you to anoint Haziel and Jehu and Elisha. Now, what's going on here? God gave Elijah a brand new assignment. Why did God do this? Yeah, it's the assignment's the loose ends before he's done here on earth. Because God wasn't through with Elijah. And if he wasn't through with Elijah, then why was Elijah shortly after this taken to heaven in a chariot? Huh? God isn't through with you. I don't know what setback you experience right now that's drained you drained your emotional tank, you're running on empty, you're running on fumes, and you may be feeling burned out. And out. Notice we're not talking about sins that you've committed that you need to repent of and be forgiven for. No, you're just experiencing burnout. I mean, life has been difficult for you, you know? Gas. I don't have anything to give. Well, God brought you here today. And no, God would not bring anybody to Saddleback. No way. God brought you... Here, so you could hear these words, and so God could say this. No, God doesn't bring people to places where his word is made void and twisted and perverted. Are you ready? God says, 
I'm not through with you. I'm not through with you. I'm not through with you. One of the quickest ways to defeat depression, get involved in helping somebody else. Jesus said in giving your life away, you find it. Elijah needed to get his eyes off himself, refocus on God's purpose and God's plan. You, ne- you may be depressed, you may be burned out, you need to stay in love. You know, I-, I-, I need to go back and do what God wants me to do. And by the way, notice that in finding a place of service where you can give yourself away, that's a major part of seeing what God wants to do in your life. And that's a major part of joy returning in your life. And I'm sure that there are people here today who feel like Elijah did. Some days you don't want to get out of bed. Some days you feel that everything's piling up against you. Some of you... Yeah, that's not how Elijah felt. He was, again, running for his life. They're physically and emotionally exhausted. You may have a short fuse with other people. No doubt some of you here today have even considered taking your life. Are you sick and tired of feeling sick and tired? There's hope in Jesus. Yeah, tell me more about Jesus. What did he do? What exactly is my hope in him? He cares, and we do too. So here's God's recovery plan to get well. You got to deal with all these dimensions of your life. How about repent and be forgiven? physical and the spiritual and the emotional and relational. You got to take care of your physical needs. Okay, rest, schedule change. You got to face and deal with the emotions you're feeling and, and you need to release those frustrations. You got to refocus and recenter your life around Christ and sugar, S-U-G-A-R, those five qualities of God. Ugh. And you got to get involved in helping somebody else. You know, many years ago, back in 1981, I went through an entire year of burnout took a full year for me to recover. You say, how did I recover? I followed these steps. You will make it with God's help. Let me pray for you. Done. No, you don't get to pray for us. Wow. So there you go. I mean, talk about a complete mangling of God's word. I don't think I can think of a more bizarre example than that. But, you know, (laughs) don't push me on it because... Give it a week, and uh, I'll find another more bizarre example than even that one. But I think you get the point. What was left out? Repentance, forgiveness of sins. Now the Bible is turned into a steps on how to overcome emotional burnout when none of the texts that he, were, that he was reading were about any of that. And none of the steps that he gave are actually given as steps to follow in Scripture. This was a complete and utter train wreck. Wow. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross. For all of your sins. Amen.